the two trials of Jesus the Christ. First, Jesus' trial before the religious authorities. Mark 14, 53-65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right in the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that makes these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the gods received him with blows. Now, Jesus' second trial before the civil authorities, it's in Mark 15, 1 to 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation, and the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. This is God's word. So I remember very well the row of us seventh grade boys hearing uh, the Monsignor personally share with us the story of Jesus' two trials. And my friends Mike and John were listening especially intently. Mike and John now were friends, but they like to, um, as often good friends, especially boys do in seventh grade, they like to rat on each other occasionally, and they would embellish uh, truths sometimes about each other. And it was especially bad for uh, John because John was the least level-headed of the two. He was like the George Costanza of our group. So he would get especially worked up and thus look guilty more quickly. So having listened to Jesus' silence to false accusations, John almost immediately approached our homeroom teacher, Mrs. Templeton, and uh, with a couple accusations. One, Mike, in fact, stole the locker that John had clearly claimed, and Mike lied about it. And number two, it was Mike who had been cutting up during her social studies lesson earlier. And (laughs) Ms. Templeton said, John, did you not just hear what the Monsignor shared about Jesus' silence at both of his trials? And John responded, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, Mike listened 
And man, he, like, Mike's a really good Catholic. That's why I'm accusing Mike, because now he has to stay silent. He can't say anything to what I'm accusing him of. <laughs> it's one of the great stories I've ever heard in terms of just completely misreading the Bible. But it's funny because it happened in seventh grade, uh, or as some of us know that, year eight. It's less funny if you're 27 or 38, and this is how you read this story. Because having once thought, having once spoke, having once reasoned like a child, hopefully you don't do any of those things like a child anymore. And you come to this passage putting away childish ways and looking at this person of Jesus, watching him quietly endure a, a hailstorm of accusations silently. And, and surely, as adults, we look at this story, we ask, why, Jesus? Why Why did you stay silent when people were lying about you? Because surely you of all people had the most right to a self-defense. And the second question is even harder to pose, of course, because it is if Jesus responded to accusations with silence, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? So I pray my prayer this morning friends, is that we will behold, first, that Jesus' silence is our only defense against eternal accusation. And secondly, I'm I'm hopeful that we see Jesus' silence models our best defense against earthly accusation. Okay, so first, Jesus' silence is our only defense against eternal accusation. Now, that's that's a big statement. There's a lot to unpack there. What is this eternal accusation? What are you talking about, Ryan? Let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, Very little defense was needed from Jesus, was it, to tip the scales in his favor. In both of these trials, he just needed to utter one statement, one word, one defense. Those most motivated to find dirt on Jesus had nobody to come forward, we find out in verse 55. Verse 56, verse 59, you can note that the testimony of those who do come forward, they don't agree. And surely there were those on the fence amongst the Sanhedrin, amongst this religious council, who would recognize he's silent, but if he just says one thing, I, he might not be guilty. Of course, that was followed by a bunch of people getting nudged forward, right? You can see it. No one's coming forward. All of a sudden, people are being pushed forward to stand up and lie about Jesus as they look downwards and mumble out accusations. Yes, I heard him say that. And then you have, in verse 65, we read about this mob justice that takes hold as an otherwise this dignified, religious, this holy council, through spits and taunts, say, prophesy. Imagine what he could have prophesied to them and been backed it up with power. I mean, even for some of you here this morning who don't yet worship Jesus, you hear people say this to him, spitting at him, and you just want one of those sort of Samuel L. Jackson moments, right? A verbal victory where he says, you are the spawn of Satan. And I will rise from the dead. You know, something like that would be just great in this moment. Instead, Jesus receives blows to the face with no comeback at all. But it was against the law for them to execute Jesus. They had to go to the civil authorities for that, so they do. And you sense, don't you, that Pontius Pilate, in a way, kind of rooting for Jesus. He's just waiting for Jesus to to say something. Indeed, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 15... We read that Pilate 
can discern that these religious leaders have brought Jesus to him out of envy. They envy the influence he's gained among the people. They envy the true power he has. Pilate knows it. He's just waiting for one plea of a credible defense, and yet Jesus remains silent. Why? Well, firstly, it's it's to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy about him. It was ironic given the fact that he was commanded through spit and mob brutality to offer a prophecy. Instead, his silence cries out, Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb before the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Which answers a layer to our question of why, but it still needs to, still the question lies open, right? Because why is this part of the Father's plan? Why is silence needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to be the Savior? Remember what he says to Judas. It's in the Gospel of John, which we, don't, we, we haven't read, but you might remember it otherwise. Judas' betrayer, he says, what you're going to do, Judas, do quickly. Do quickly. See, in Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, as we read last week, he prayed three times for the Father to remove him from this execution or at least slow it down. But finally, he submits to the Father's will. And once he does so, He wants to get to the Father's will as quickly as possible. As quickly as he can. What's going to happen, please happen quickly. So he drops a self-defense. Because he's right, any claim to righteousness would have surely persuaded any finite human being. So he doesn't say really much at all. Dropping his self-defense will help him speed from Gethsemane 1,300 meters as he walked along to the palace of the high priest. And then 300 meters more to the palace of Herod the Great from which Pilate would make his ruling and his judgment. And then 500 meters more right outside the city gates to Golgotha where he would be executed. It's not that he doesn't say anything. In fact, Jesus speaks once at each trial. He speaks of who he is and of whose he is. Both times, notice, Jesus says things that will get him more quickly to the Father's will towards his execution. To answer, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of Yahweh. I'm going to sit next to him and I'm going to come again in power. That was the clearest statement yet to his deity said to the chief priest. The one who would most quickly say, blasphemy. Tearing his robes. We don't need to hear anything else. He says the one thing that would get him most quickly to his execution. Same thing to Pilate. They bring to Pilate the accusation. He's calling himself a king, king of the Jews. Pilate, you're a governor under the authority of Caesar. Any claim to kingship must be met with punishment. So when Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? Yes. Jesus knows that will speed towards the Father's will, His execution. What is the Father's will then? According to 1 John 3.8, the Father's will is for Jesus to destroy the work of the devil. 
The devil literally means accuser, diablos, accuser. Specifically, the devil accuses us about sin, about rebellion and its power to separate. But here's the amazing thing. Through the cross, Jesus takes upon himself true accusations of us and makes them false for us. So he's going to speed towards this execution because at this execution, Jesus will take upon himself what will be otherwise true accusations about us and make them false for us. Colossians 2.15, the Apostle Paul says that basically through the cross, Jesus disarms the devil. He takes away his strongest weapons, separating through sin. This is why Jesus has to stay silent to false accusations. Going to get in there more quickly. You've heard, I think, of a family tree, haven't you? How many of you guys have done a family tree or a hereditary tree in your life? Just find out your lineage. Very good. I have here this morning an accusation tree. I'm not going to make too much of it. but An accusation tree. Look, the devil shoots darts at us, at believers. He shoots darts at us about sin's ability to separate us. And they fall, I think, into three categories. Firstly, you're not good enough. Right? And that has to do with our relationship with God. Secondly, nobody loves or respects you. That has to do with our relationship to others. And finally, there's no hope for change, which has to do with your relationship to your future. You're not good enough. Nobody loves or respects you. This is never going to change. And everything, there's so many lies and accusations that proceed then from that. So for instance, never good enough. Out of that flows that you have nothing to offer. You should just stop communing with God. What's the use of praying to Him? It's never going to be good enough. Communicates to you the lie that you have to earn it, out of which flows self-righteousness if you start actually putting on a good performance for God or frustration when you fail to earn it well and living for God. Out of the lie that, that nobody loves or respects you who trust Christ, you cut yourself off from fellowship. Why do I need it? I don't want to be around other people. No one really likes me. No one really respects me. You start to act like someone you're not. Because who you are isn't good enough for the church of Jesus Christ. You start to submit to unhealthy relationships because those are the only people who will accept you. You start to people please so that people are your God instead of Jesus Christ. In this third category of accusation, no hope for change, out of which... And that tree flows. You start to live for self. You're hardened to others. Because nothing's really going to change. You grow embittered. You resign yourself to what you consider your fate. Out of which flows depression, anxiety. Here's the, the amazing part. Is that without Jesus, all of these accusations are true. For instance, number two, you're, you know, no one loves or respects me. Titus 3.3 3 says... The life before coming a Christian, before becoming a child of God, people basically hate and hate one another. There's this relational discord. Apart from Jesus, we not only spend our lives, but eternity hearing these three accusations. You're not good enough. Imagine hearing that for all eternity. You're not good enough. No one loves you, and this is not going to change. Without Jesus, those things would be true. But on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all that never good enough for God. Jesus took upon himself relational discord. He took upon himself all that unbelief, that lack of hope that God 
can change every circumstance. And he made it false for us. Those things are no longer true. He disarmed every demonic power. He put them to open shame, according to Colossians 2.15. The image that Paul's using there in Colossians 2 is one of the humiliated prisoners of war. And that's a great way to think of the devil's relationship to people who trust Jesus. He is now a prisoner behind the glass. You might know this, hopefully just from TV and movies, but you might know this image where prisoners can talk to free persons behind the glass, right? They either get on the phone with them, and they kind of whisper to them on the phone very quietly. they got like five minutes. And And the devil does, he whispers accusations towards us, lies towards us that aren't true. Or he bangs on the glass as we walk away. Right? He shouts at us. He accuses us and he bangs and he bangs and he bangs. You say you trust Jesus, but you're not good enough. You say you know Christ, but nobody in the church even likes you or wants to be near you. You say you have hope, but you have no real hope. Just forget God. Resign yourself to your fate. Nothing's really going to change. These are the lies, friends, of an accuser behind a prison of glass. And he yells them. And he screams them. Sometimes he whispers them. But he has no real power. Because Jesus has disarmed him. You don't have to waste your breath or your life justifying yourself anymore to God or to others because Jesus already has. He's already justified you by taking on those false accusations so that they're no longer true of us. Jesus stays silent, so then to to secure for us eternal life. But here's the great thing about the cross of Christ. It contains solutions for our earthly life also. So when people of this earth falsely accuse us, the cross should be the first place we look for guidance. To the cross. To the example of Jesus. So Jesus' silence not only secures for us an eternal salvation so that we can no longer be accused for eternity, but Jesus' silence models our best defense against earthly accusation. And I hope you're pleased to not hear me say the only defense. There is a time to stand up and speak. We'll talk about that too. But Jesus' silence is our best defense. Amongst accusations that people might throw your way, whether it be a boss, a coworker, a friend, a family member who says something about you, The least common are just flat-out, blatant, specific, made-up lies. People rarely throw those your way. Usually, it's twisting your words, right? Just twisting your words slightly to support their story, to support a slanderous story about you. And actually, we see that here in verse 58. Look at that with me here. We heard him say, speaking of Jesus, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. But that's not what the Jewish persons heard him say. We hear in John chapter 2, verse 19, this is what they're referring to. Jesus addresses them saying, destroy this temple, which you will do. And in three days, I will raise it up. In other words, they're the destroyers. He doesn't say he's going to destroy. You guys are going to destroy. And in three days, I will raise it up. And no, he never says made with hands. He never said that either. So, th- so they, just like Satan did, right? In Genesis 3, he takes something G- God actually said and twists it. And this is what people often do with us. Taking something we say, twisting it slightly. 
The second way we hear accusations is, is making a big deal about one small event. Right? One small event in a series, and people blow that out of proportion. So, for instance, I had a friend who um, was going through a conflict resolution with someone, and he asked them permission to look into their background a little bit, ask a coworker about them. It was a brief request in a series of, of trying to resolve this. Well, the person that came back and said, look, you were spying on me. You were snooping into my life. That's all you ever do. I, I, this was like one thing I did. I, I asked your permission. Just hard to hear. Oftentimes, when people make accusations about you, they're generalized and broad statements. And can you believe he's, he's, he's always talking about other people? Or, man, don't you feel like he's too, uh, he's too picky or he's too sensitive? Not bringing up specific things, but just making broad statements about you. Sometimes it comes through an omission. Man, you should have done more. You could have done more. Why didn't you? People don't often take into account the should have done more and the could have done more that you were doing for those to whom you're responsible for your life. Why weren't you there for me, though? And you just feel like, ah, oh, man. But the worst is when you go the extra mile and it's later used against you. Have you ever done that for someone? Where in your efforts to, to put yourself out there and help go the extra mile for them, and they use that actually against you to slander you. Look, I'm a big believer that God gives you exactly what you need. Right here. Every day when you wake up and you read the Bible, he gives you daily bread that you need. So this week, I'm reading here in Mark 14 and 15, Jesus' two trials. And I'm talking with my family about it during the week. Gage went through something during soccer practice. Someone accused his teammate of something. And Gage, he learned to endure it silently. And we're talking about this during the week. Well, of course, God was preparing us for something. Katie said hello to someone on Friday. She said hello to someone because we love this person who used to attend Sunrise. It was a person who years ago uh, had few people to turn to. And I met with this person about a half dozen times and forged a relationship with them. This person approached me about spiritual abuse they felt like they had endured from other, other pastors, other Christian leaders. And it hurt them. And they had their own sort of issues along with this. Now, I don't claim to always or even usually be quick to respond like Jesus would, guys. I mean, I don't. But in this occasion, like, Jesus really helped me just to follow him and to follow his heart in the matter. And um, I just prayed with the person. We made a plan. We met up again. I asked him about the plan again. And he said, you know, this is going to be hard, but I'll do it. I approached the elders immediately. Uh, in fact, my friend Terry, who's here this morning, was there for this. And um, a request that we give not only our time, but let's, let's give some money to help this person. And we agreed up to a, a very high and... and I think, generous limit. <laughs> and it turns out that it wasn't going to be sufficient in that person's eyes. We offered plan A, it wasn't sufficient. Plan B, it wasn't sufficient. And that person said, you know, it's not enough. Got radio silence at first and hear from them. Finally, they said they never wanted to hear from me or the church again. And I reached out again, nothing. And then others started approaching me. You know, this person's coming. They're saying this. They're saying stuff. So when Katie said hello to the person on Friday, they didn't know she was my wife. And so when she mentioned Sunrise, uh, 
she received accusations about, you know, that Ryan and that church, which was hard for her. And um, she remained silent. She asked another question just of concern, nothing to do with the church or me, to which she was yelled at. She was screamed, it's none of your business. Don't talk to me about this. Get away from me. Get away from me in public. (laughs) My wife, who I love and having to endure this, um, should she have said something? In fact, as one of her students actually walked by at the same time, simultaneously, should she have just defended? Should she have defended her husband? Should she have justified any actions? Even as I share this with you, should I clarify? Should I you know, justify? Should I defend myself? I recognize as I share this with you, I run the risk. For anyone here wondering, man, what, what, you know, what really happened? Like, you know, surely Ryan was a, he, he was an insensitive nincompoop. In that situation, I bet maybe he was. And it's tempting to say more about it and go on about it. You know, the Apostle Peter failed right here in the middle of this passage. We read about it last week. It comes in between these two passages. He was accused three times, and he got self-defensive. He was restored, and then he learned how to stay silent like Jesus towards false accusations, and he encouraged others how to also suffer, or sorry, to endure injustice towards them. He says this in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 24. You can turn there, you can read this with me on the screen. Servants, be subject with, to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, friends, a faith-filled silence is our best defense against sin. It's our best defense. I'm not saying it's our only defense. I'll get to that in a moment. But it is our best defense when someone accuses us wrongly. First of all, because it grows our trust. Right? Look what it says here. That Jesus himself continued entrusting himself. Continued. It means he kept on doing it. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It grows our trust that the Father is just. He can defend our reputation. Any and every rumor, accusation, or injustice is an opportunity to rely more on God's verdict about us than others' verdict about us. Isn't that good news? Secondly, staying silent, it gives us opportunity to look one degree more like Jesus. He says here in 1 Peter 2, it's, it's a lead, he left us an example. In fact, that word, that, that word example is literally translated underwriting. He left for us an underwriting. It's a, it's a school word. Teachers would lightly trace the Greek alphabet so students could etch over it. Right? Alpha, beta, 
So Jesus also traced out his life for us. We have his life traced out right here for us so that we might etch over it our own lives. So in staying silent, false accusations, you become a little more looking like Jesus. Isn't that a great image? Thirdly, staying silent, you have the opportunity to cause amazement at grace. Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed, we're told here in verse 5 of chapter 15. You know, we've talked to Pilate seeming almost to root for Jesus, but I've got to tell you guys, Pilate was no softy by nature. Uh, ancient historians, uh, Josephus being one of them, Philo being another, describe Pilate far differently historically. In fact, Philo says, summarizes Pilate as, quote, inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. That's his final assessment of Pilate. Inflexible, stubborn, cruel. What makes a, such a person grow soft, grow amazed? Having seen hundreds of people defend themselves at trials, it doesn't amaze when enduring suffering went wrong. The world is used to that. They're accustomed to self-defense, to self-justification, to cries of foul play when unjustly accused. But to endure with silence, that is a gracious thing, Peter says in verse 20 of 1 Peter 2. A gracious thing. That changes stubborn hearts. That softens people to, to see the tracing out of Jesus in your life. I mean, I, I believe that student walking by Katie when she was reviled, he heard mostly self-defense probably most of his life, maybe as a teenager, hardened. Maybe even he's seen his parents or aunts and uncles or, or other teachers sort of defend themselves when accused. But maybe he was amazed by silence, and he might inquire further. How awesome would that be? Now, I want to just I want to drill down and get even more practical for the remaining minutes of our time. If we First, some questions to ask of the situation before you do speak up. There is a time to speak up. Here are some questions to ask of the situation. One, am I under the clear authority of the person treating me unfairly? The Bible speaks of specific spheres in which submission is especially pleasing to God and is especially vivid to an onlooking world, our submission. The first is the sphere of government, 1 Peter 2. Romans 13, to submit to the authorities. So important. There's the sphere of family, including husbands, wives, that relationship. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Also parents, children. Ephesians 6. The sphere of the church family, leaders, flock. Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter 5. The sphere of employment, boss, employee. 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 6. These situations especially require examination. If we're going to come up from under submission and confront. Secondly, here's a question. Are you or someone, sorry, are you or someone for whom you're responsible in imminent danger? Is someone making an accusation about you that's putting you in imminent danger? Physical harm? Immediate loss of job? That's the kind of thing we're talking about here, such that your family will suffer, your kids and your providing will suffer. You have to discern through that. Thirdly, has this injustice been long-suffered or short-suffered? Oh, you know, but it's heading in the wrong direction. I haven't suffered it for long, but you can see it going in the wrong direction. That's not really long-suffering. That's short-suffering. Fourthly, is God's truth being called into question or ridicule? Just like Jesus at these two trials. When God's truth is brought up, he responds, doesn't he? 
Fifthly, have I prayed for my persecutor? I mean, honestly, we kind of say it. I kind of prayed for them. I love them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Good questions to ask. Also, some questions to ask of yourself before speaking up. Did I make an excuse for myself? When I was accused falsely, did I make an excuse for myself? And if so, did I make more than one excuse? Because when you say more than one thing, it goes from explanation usually to excuse. You're not just explaining yourself, you're making excuses. Secondly, what is the person threatening to take from me or deprive me of? What, is he, what, what are they really going to be taking from me and making this accusation? Is my reputation? Is it more money? Is it loyalty? Are they going to take my friends or a, a job promotion? These are not the things for which we should be speaking up. Now, when you do speak up to accusation, here's the key, guys. Do so with the priority of making known who you are and whose you are. This is what Jesus does. The Apostle Paul twice speaks up to defend himself in Acts chapter 21 and 22. But in both cases, it's to testify about Jesus, about who he is, both to this rabble crowd and ultimately to Caesar himself, to Rome. When Jesus does speak up in John chapter 8, the accusations just to testify that before Abraham was born, I am. I am the God you've been looking for. Here, Jesus calls out the king of the Jews, the son of the blessed one. So also with us. Here then are some tips to make known who you are and whose you are. First, get the log out of your own eye. If you're going to speak up, make sure you first examine where can I admit fault. Where can I say, you know what? I've made some mistakes. Here's what they are. A gentle answer, answer, Proverbs says, turns away wrath. Secondly, confront the person privately and in person when possible. No one likes to be confronted in front of a crowd or humiliated in front of fellow employees or, or their kids or otherwise. Third, confront specifically. Avoid generalized and broad statements. Share this. When you did this, here's how it made me feel. Let me be specific. Fourthly, plan to follow up in the near future. Frankly, when you're going to talk to someone about their accusations about you, some of us are carnivores to conflict, and some of us are herbivores. Meaning some of us can take what you say, right? If we falsely accuse you, swallow it whole, and we'll be okay with it. Carnivores. Some of us are like cows. We've got to chew on it, digest it, regurgitate it, chew on it again, digest it. So follow up with someone. They might not be able to receive it at first, but eventually they could. I want to close with a story that hope inspires you. Uh, it would have been neater if it happened to me. It didn't. <laughs> it would have been neater if it happened to someone I know. It didn't. But it did happen to an older pastor I respect. And it's about a boy who's 12 years old, since we began with a seventh grader, who, who did not get the example traced out by Jesus and understand it. It's poetic justice to end with a seventh grader who did. Twelve-year-old boy asked if he could attend a prayer meeting at his church, to which his hostile, unbelieving father kind of reluctantly said, fine, fine, go. On his way home, a friend saw him walking back, offered him a ride, said, come along, you know. His dad spotted him in his friend's car. He said, you lied to me about going to the prayer meeting, right? You really went away with friends to hang out with him. You're a liar. You betrayed me, and you're grounded. The boy endured accusations and the punishment. He loved his dad. He wanted his dad to see his example of tracing out Jesus in his life. Later during the weekend at the hardware store, the father ran into this pastor. The pastor didn't know about the punishment the dad had dealt out to his boy. But he said to him, 
you have a fine son. At the prayer meeting this week, he actually stood up as a seventh grader and, and gave a word of testimony about what God's done in his life. The father was completely broken, completely broken. Tears welled up in his eyes. Thinking about his son and how he modeled true Christianity. And later, he approached the same pastor to ask how he could trust Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, I've been just singing in my heart that great hymn all week that says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I see you there who made an end to all my sin. Jesus, because you stayed silent, we who trust you are defended eternally from every satanic, devilish accusation. Thank you. Help us then to, to stay silent to earthly accusations. In you, Jesus, we have a stronger, more perfect plea than our own self-defense, our own self-justification. Help us to continue entrusting ourselves to you who judge justly. And when we do speak up, help us really show with our lives who we are and whose we are. May the world be amazed by our example to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.